How do you know what has value? In this country, we've sort of always known the Declaration of Independence holds out values to us. It's that document when in history we declared again that all people have a right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But thanks to film star Nicolas Cage, we now know the Declaration of Independence is part of an elaborate map leading to one of the greatest treasures of all time. I'm speaking, of course, about the 2004 fictional movie National Treasure. Just when you thought you understood your values rightly, then you watch the movie and realize you had no idea. Also, please don't attempt to steal the Declaration of Independence based entirely in historical fiction. But should you value treasure over existence? Or freedom? Or pleasure in some way? And perhaps more importantly, how do you know what you should value? As we turn again to Mark 9 this morning, to continue our study in the Gospel of Mark, we'll find our passage raises the question of values for all of us. Because following Jesus turns our values and expectations upside down. So listen to God's word in Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 30, as I read. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me, receives not me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him, because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, Whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Following Jesus requires rethinking your values. Following Jesus requires rethinking your values. See, we all come into the world valuing certain things and not others. By nature, we tend to think someone is great because they have a lot of fame or wealth 
or power. Our world teaches us that the first and best should be served by everyone else. Even our movies try to cultivate in us a worldly love of money as our true national treasure. But one thing we're seeing repeatedly in our study through Mark's gospel is the clash of the values of the world with the values of Jesus' kingdom. The kingdom of God is like an upside-down version of our world. Or maybe better said, our world has been turned upside-down by sin and rebellion against God, the one who made it, the one who's told us how we should live. So I want us to notice three principles from the text this morning which help us consider the reversal of values that the kingdom of Jesus brings. First, in verses 30 to 32, we need to see Jesus as Savior. Second, in verses 33 to 35, we must see greatness as serving. And third, in verses 36 to 41, we must receive others as fellow servants. Again, see Jesus as Savior, see greatness as serving, and receive others as servants. Let's get into the text. The first section in verses 30 through 32 contains the second prediction Jesus gives to his disciples of his impending death and resurrection. At this point in Mark's gospel, Jesus has already told his followers that he will suffer and die and rise from the dead, back in Mark chapter 8, verse 31. Here in Mark 9, verse 30, it says, Jesus did not want anyone to know. We've considered the secret of Mark's gospel already a few times this year, but by way of reminder, Jesus tells people not to tell anyone about him because if word gets out, He could be forced to face his end before he's been able to do all that he came to do. Publicity of this sort hinders his mission. It doesn't help it. But notice, too, the reason Mark gives us in verse 31. It says, For he was teaching his disciples. One of the things Jesus came to do was teach. His desire for discretion serves the discipling of his followers. Because sometimes discretion serves discipleship. And what was he teaching them? He was saying to them, I'm going to be given up to people who will kill me. Just imagine it. Imagine going into battle as a cadet, and your commander takes you aside on one of the trips and says, now I need you to know I'm going to die. That would be astonishing, wouldn't it? What kind of leader of an influential movement leads precisely by going to his gruesome death? Well, following Jesus requires rethinking your values. In the kingdom of God, dying is saving. Losing is gaining. Giving up? is receiving. The blessed life, the good life, is the one that you give away for the sake of others. To see Jesus as Savior, we must understand His death as our salvation. Without His death, there is no salvation for you or me or anyone. And without His resurrection, there is no hope for any of us. 
if that tomb isn't empty, we're the most pitiable people of all because we're believing a lie. The cross and the empty tomb are central to the life and ministry of Jesus. That's why he came to earth to begin with. Disciples must understand this. So he tells them again, a second time, even though he's already told them. And he's actually going to go and tell them a third time later in Mark's gospel in chapter 10. So church, don't think you're growing only if you're learning something new. Very often in our Christian life, the thing we need most is to be reminded of something we already know. We need the ministry of reminder. Jesus only ever tells us something more than once for our good. Because we're a forgetful people. Sometimes we forget even the most important things. So we need to be reminded But how did the disciples respond? Look at verse 32. It says, They did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. I think they're afraid because they knew something of what would be required but didn't want to hear it. Maybe they just didn't want to get called Satan again like Peter did last time. But it's true that only the resurrection of Jesus and his teaching them afterwards could convince them that this is good news. They couldn't understand fully until the resurrection. And for now, they're afraid to ask for more. But I think their reaction raises a question for us, a very important one. How should we respond to this word from Jesus that he's going to suffer and die and rise? Do you see Jesus as Savior Especially if you're here and you're not following Jesus. You wouldn't consider yourself a Christian. Or maybe you've always thought you were a Christian because what else would you be? I just want to speak to you a moment about seeing Jesus as Savior. It's actually not a thing we can just check off on a quiz or a test. Like when somebody presses you and you just say the right answer. That's not what it means to see Jesus as Savior necessarily. What it means to see Jesus as Savior is not just that you give the right answer, but in your heart, there's actually a trust in Him and Him alone for the righteousness you need before God. See, Christians believe that a good God made the world and everything in it, you and me and everyone we've ever seen, everything we've ever seen, made by a good God. And God is so good that He's been plain and clear with us about how we should live in His world. And yet all of us have ignored Him We've gone our own way. We've disobeyed when we should have obeyed. We've done what you don't do, and we've not done what you're supposed to do. The Bible calls that sin, and it's an offense against God. You know this in your heart and conscience. You haven't always told the truth, just like me. You've hated other people when you should love them. Jesus even says, the one who murders someone, the same thing in their heart that makes them do that is in all of ours when we hate someone else, when we don't give them the love that they're due because they're made by a good God who loves them. See, we've all sinned against God, and our sins against God are infinite because they're against an infinite God. 
So they deserve infinite punishment in what Christians call hell, eternal, conscious torment and suffering. That's what justice would require. If God is going to be good, he'll punish sin and sinners. You don't want a God who lets the guilty go unpunished, I promise. You know this if you just consider the courts of this world. We don't want them to let the person off. We want justice. That's a good and right desire. But if you really want justice, you'll want it against yourself too. That's what justice means. That nobody gets off the hook. So how can a good and just God be with people like us who have sinned against him? The answer's in the cross. It's because Jesus Christ lived a perfect life, always obeying God, and then went to the cross to die like a sinner. But he wasn't one. He died because I'm a sinner. Because you're a sinner. He died the death that we deserve so that we could have life in his name. And he didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead. That tomb is empty. It's true. It's all true. So if you're not following Jesus, I would encourage you, see Jesus as Savior. See his death as your life. See his resurrection as a promise of future hope. Eternity in glory with God forever. And if you are following Jesus, we all need to recognize that following Jesus requires rethinking our values. Your life as one of his followers should have a cross shape to it, like his. Life comes not through clinging tightly to the things of this world, but through giving everything away for the good of others and the glory of God. Seeing Jesus as Savior shapes our life of service in following him. And that's exactly where Mark goes next. Let's consider our second point from the text. We need to see greatness as serving. Listen again to verses 33 through 35 as I read. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. So they've been passing through Galilee. And Mark says they've come to Capernaum. That's some 12 miles journey. It'd be a little bit like if you go from church here at SCS to Ben Lacey's house for Bible study and back again. That's 12 miles. It's not that long of a distance. But in that short span, the disciples are caught arguing In verse 33, Jesus asked them, what were you discussing on the way? Spoiler alert, guys. I don't think he's trying to learn something that he didn't already know. My guess is he overheard their disputes. And even if he didn't, this is the man who knows all things. He doesn't need someone to tell him. So the question invites them out into the open where Jesus can deal with their hearts and teach them what's true. And they're clearly embarrassed because they don't respond. Church, aren't we a lot like these disciples sometimes? Like them, we sometimes dispute over what are really distractions from Jesus, his message and his mission. Just consider how you might argue with other followers of Christ in unhelpful or inappropriate ways. What conversations might you need to avoid or end this week as you go about walking with the Lord. 
Okay, let's look at what the disciples are arguing about in the text. You can see it in verse 34. Who is the greatest? It's a bit ironic. Because the context here is that a few of them just went up the mountain, saw the glorious transfiguration of Jesus, and then promptly failed to drive out a demon. It's like the two things in your life that wouldn't make you think you're great. You just saw the greatest, most glorious one, and then you failed to do the thing he sent you to do. So what did they think makes someone great? I've cast out more demons than you. I've healed more people than you. I was the first to drop my nets and follow after the Lord. I've believed in him the longest. I've won more converts. More people listen to me and follow me and hear my message. Is that what it sounded like? Obviously, it required a real come-to-Jesus moment. So that's in verse 35. Jesus sat down and called the twelve to himself. It's like when coach calls the guys into the locker room. I'm told this happens. <laughs> and he sits them down for the big game speech. I get this especially as an Oklahoma State football fan. Because for the first half of the game, it doesn't go very well. It's like we forget to play defense or something. Like You, use, you lose to UCF or South Alabama, or almost losing to BYU yesterday. Something's just very, very, very off. Well, in a similar way, the disciples are very off in this moment. So Jesus sits them down for a talk. He assumes the posture common to an authoritative teacher in the ancient context. And what does he teach them? If anyone would be first, he must be last of all, and servant of all. You need to see greatness as serving. If you want to be great, you need to serve. In fact, you can't be great if you won't serve. To be first, you must make yourself last. To get to the top, rush to the bottom. Now, let me be clear. Your problem is not actually that you want to be great. Your desire to make your life count is a good thing. But Jesus wants you to understand greatness rightly. You can't pursue it otherwise. Like shooting at a target blindfolded. You're not going to hit the thing. You've got to know what you're aiming for. So how might we misunderstand greatness today? On the one hand, I think we can tend to think something is great just because it's old. But one of the oldest things in the history of the world is sin and rebellion against God. And that's not worth conserving. Now, on the other hand, something is not great simply because it's new either. It's often been said, if it's new, it ain't true, because heresies are always creative. So progress is not always a good thing. Perhaps even more often, though, we can tend to think of greatness in terms of results. It's almost like we have an infection, our obsession with numbers. Like if we report more giving or more baptisms, then we're really doing kingdom work. And don't go all McDonald's on me. 
and turn the greatness of serving into numbers, like 300 billion served, or whatever the number is now. Because as one brother said, at no point does the way of Jesus diverge more sharply from the way of the world than on the question of greatness. Jesus does not exactly repudiate prominence and greatness, but he redefines them. The challenge is to be great in things that matter to God. Following Jesus requires rethinking your values. If we see Him as Savior, then we need to see greatness as serving. How do you become great according to Jesus? You imitate Him. You put yourself last and serve everyone else. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So think of others as more significant than yourself, like Jesus did. Take initiative for the benefit of others, like Jesus did. We need to see Jesus as Savior and ourselves as his servants. He's given us a task to do, and we need to do it faithfully as as we can, as faithfully as we can by God's grace. Who is it that Jesus tells you to put yourself behind and under. He says it in verse 35. We're to be last of all and servant of all. In the Greek, that word all means all. Everyone. No exceptions. Consider yourself last, the least significant. Then you'll be ready to serve how Jesus calls you to serve. If I can make this really practical for a moment, one of the ways to be great at TRBC is to serve in children's ministry or on the setup and teardown team or wherever we have the most need and the least volunteers. None of us should think ourselves too great for the lowest of jobs needing to be done for Christ and his people. In the kingdom, low is high. Being great in the kingdom means there's nothing beneath you. Seeing Jesus as Savior means seeing greatness as serving. Because following Jesus requires rethinking your values. And if we're going to do that, we must also receive others as fellow servants. That's our third and final point this morning. Receive others as servants. Seeing our Savior shapes our serving, not only how we see our own serving, but also how we see other servants. If we would follow Jesus, then we need to treat all who belong to Christ as his servants. Listen again to verses 36 to 41 as I read. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him, because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means 
lose his reward. As simply as I can put it, you should treat every follower of Christ as a follower of Christ. Treat every follower of Christ as those who belong to him. I think that's what Jesus is up to here. We need to receive his followers as fellow servants alongside ourselves, not above us or below us. And to make his point, Jesus uses a child as a kind of teaching illustration. In verse 36, he puts a child in the middle of their group, picks him up, and starts explaining. Why a child? It has to do with status in ancient society. The child represents the last and least and lowest in the social situation of the time. A child is under authority and in the care of others. He can't make his own life decisions fully by himself. So the charge from Jesus here is to reverse the common understanding of status. It's to regard as important someone thought to be unimportant. That's what he says in verse 37. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. How you treat the seemingly insignificant around you reveals how you think about Jesus. How you act toward the ones you can see next to you just shows everyone how you relate to the God we can't see. By receive here, I think Jesus just means welcome or to treat with significance rather than ignoring people or worse, driving them away. The point is that no one is too insignificant for Jesus. So children, do you know what that means? You're not too young to come to Christ. And you need to come to Christ for forgiveness. He's the only one who can forgive you, and you cannot relate to God through your parents. If you want to know more about what that looks like in your own life, kids, your parents or any member of this church would love to talk to you about it after church today. Look back at verse 37. Jesus says, whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. That is, how we relate to Jesus reveals how we relate to God, his Father. But notice something important here. Jesus refers to himself as having been sent by the Father. It's a common way that Jesus speaks throughout the Gospels. It shows us that Jesus didn't merely come from Mary and Joseph. Jesus came into our world from another world, we might say. This little word, sent, indicates Jesus' divinity again. We should believe that Jesus is God. Amen? Amen. Amen. Now, in verse 38, John takes issue with someone doing miracles in Jesus' name. He says, we tried to stop him because he was not following us. Did you see that? This man is some follower of Christ that doesn't belong to the disciples' group. Do you remember when this takes place in Mark's gospel? John has just come down the mountain of transfiguration, and the disciples failed to cast out a demon. Ben Lacey preached about this so, so well last week, right? So this stranger 
now being able to cast out demons in Jesus' name must have been a big hit to the disciples' pride. They don't even know him, and he can do what they can't do. Because notice, John's concern is not allegiance to Jesus. It's membership in the disciples' group. So look at Jesus' reply in verse 39. He says, don't stop him. Don't stop him. Why? Jesus gives three reasons, which you can see from the three times the word for shows up. F-O-R. It means because. So these are three arguments or reasons why the disciples should not stop this man from doing what he's doing here. First, he's with Jesus, which means second, he's for the disciples, not against them. And then third, he'll be rewarded in the end. Let's look at each of these in turn. First, in verse 39, the man is evidently a follower of Christ. Okay, listen, I don't know what videos you've seen on the internet recently, but the name of Jesus is not a talisman or magic spell for performing miracles or casting out demons or healing. That is not what is going on here. Rather, this person, whom the disciples don't seem to have met, is a follower of Christ. He's serving the Lord Jesus. Somehow, he's come to know Jesus and believe his message and become a part of his kingdom. The fact that he can work this miracle means he's not an enemy but a friend. So Jesus wants the disciples to treat him as such. Second, in verse 40, if you're with Jesus, you're with his people. To be with me, in verse 39, is to be with us in verse 40. You need to notice, too, there's only two options. You're either with Jesus or you're against him. There is no third option. There is no middle way, no third way, no neutrality, just the two. To be undecided on Jesus, that means, is to be against Jesus. Elsewhere, Jesus would say, whoever is not with me is against me. That's just the other side of the same coin that we see here. You're with him or against him. So how do you know who is for Jesus? Well, we can't hear people's thoughts or look into their hearts, so we have to make judgments based upon what people say and how they live. What you're looking for is faith and repentance. Simply put, who do they say Jesus is, and do they live like they think that's biblically true? In other words, does their faith in Jesus cause them to obey Jesus? Not perfectly. Of course, it's never perfect until glory, but it is persistent faith. You're looking for a pattern of walking with Christ in speech and behavior. You're not looking for a sinless person because there's only one of those in the history of mankind. Amen? So don't turn faith into faithfulness. There are people who make this error today. We're not looking for faithfulness to know we have a follower. We're looking for faith, which is always imperfect in this life. We have a perfect Savior who really does save us and makes us more like himself increasingly in this life. 
You're just looking for someone who's good at repentance by God's grace, a fellow believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's just what a Christian is. So in short, Jesus tells us this miracle-working man is a Christian. And so third, the disciples should expect him to be rewarded, which you can see in verse 41. God keeps track of the mercy done by those who belong to Christ, and he means to reward it with glory, with God himself. We don't need to look beyond God here when we consider the Christian's reward. You have everything you need in him. Christian, you get God to enjoy forever. These three reasons Jesus gives illustrate the openness of the kingdom of God for all who follow Christ. The unknown exorcist ought to be welcomed as a fellow follower. No doubt, there are opponents and outsiders, as we'll see elsewhere in the Gospels, but disciples ought to be cautious about drawing lines of separation. I thought one commentator summarized this really well. We're supposed to be a church, not a sect, not a cult. You and I should likewise read these verses and put off all forms of tribalism. Because there are no cliques in the kingdom of God, there should be no cliques in our church. Every single member of our church is a part of our family of faith. And I think this extends beyond the borders of our church as well. The kingdom of God is bigger than Trinity River Baptist Church. Praise God. So, for example, when you speak about the health of churches here in Fort Worth, we should all be most clear on the gospel, on whether or not that church has the same gospel as us. We shouldn't speak about the unhealth of churches as though they are not true churches when they are. Brothers and sisters, we're not the first or only ones with the gospel here. We need to love the churches of Christ, the people, more than we love their health. And yes, we can pray and labor for the health of churches as well as God gives opportunity and influence. The 19th century British Anglican bishop, J.C. Ryle, understood this and warned us about it. Listen to this long but lengthy and well-worthed quote. J.C. Ryle. Let us be on our guard against this feeling. It is only too near the surface of all our hearts. Let us study to realize that liberal, tolerant spirit which Jesus here recommends, and be thankful for good works wheresoever and by whomsoever done. Let us beware of the slightest inclination to stop and check others merely because they do not choose to adopt our plans or work by our side. We may think our fellow Christians mistaken in some points. We may fancy that more would be done for Christ if they would join us and if all worked in the same way, we may see many evils arising from religious dissensions and divisions. 
But all this must not prevent us rejoicing. If the works of the devil are destroyed and souls are saved, is our neighbor warring against Satan? Is he really trying to labor for Christ? This is the grand question. Better a thousand times that the work should be done by other hands than not done at all. This truth is what the disciples in Mark 9 still don't seem to understand. Their argument about who is greater just reveals that they don't yet see the Savior and His kingdom rightly. Because following Jesus requires rethinking your values. And we need to get this crucial connection between the life of our Lord and our lives as His servants. In all of our thinking and behavior, we must recognize and reinforce this reversal of values. We're to be shaped most of all by the self-sacrifice of Jesus, who took initiative for the benefit of others. He gave himself for us and for our salvation. Seeing our Savior shapes our serving. So we must see Jesus as Savior, see greatness as serving, and receive others as fellow servants. Let's pray now and ask for God's help to do that. Oh, Lord, we thank you for your word to us in Mark chapter 9. We thank you for the Lord Jesus who does what we cannot do. He loved us and gave himself for our sins that he might reconcile us to you. And he gives us his spirit that we might live lives that glorify you, not perfectly, but persistently. We pray that as we've heard your word, You'd give us grace to put it into practice. We know that we won't do it apart from your grace, and so we ask that what you command, you would also give. Would you cause us to keep the cross ever before us, near to us, in our minds and hearts, knowing that even though we aren't perfect, Jesus is, and he saves imperfect people like us. Would you get much glory from our lives, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.